Uh, so happy Labor Day. We're going to send everybody out in, in to the weekend with style and great joy because we're talking about divorce today. Right? Um, I would not have personally chosen. Jake's grinning at me back there. I would not have personally chosen to talk about divorce. That would not have been on my list of things to talk about. It was not on my... I'm going to pull a Jake. All right. Uh, it was not on my list of things to talk about. Um, but Jake asked me specifically to talk about divorce, so that's what I'm talking about. Um, and one of the reasons he asked me to speak about divorce is because I have been divorced. Um, I don't know how many in this room know this. This is fine. Oh, we're good. Um, so yes, Becca is actually my second wife. None of you knew Kristen, my first wife. Um, this was maybe 15 years ago now, something like that. Um, the short version is that we got married, uh, and then she decided that she didn't actually really want to be married. Um, basically kind of worked against the relationship, sort of torpedoed things. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and walked out about six months later. Um, so that's kind of the back. Um, there's more to it than that, obviously. Um, I'm not going to go too much into details. I am going to say that I, I think I can honestly say that I did everything I reasonably could. We'll talk about that a little bit, too. Um, and, you know, again, that said, you know, marriage is a two-way street. Um, so even in a situation where you have one person kind of torpedoing the thing, and, and uh, in my situation, one person purposely torpedoing the thing, you can't really just lay blame on one person. Um, and the reality is that there were warning signs and flags that I ignored, those around me ignored. Um, we should not have been in that position. So she should not have been put in the situation where she felt she had to act in a way, um, you know, she felt she had to pull the, the escape patch, basically. She should never have been put in that position. Um, so I don't want you to think that I'm wholesaling blaming someone else because that is never accurate in a marriage, all right? Um, that doesn't necessarily excuse anything. I'm just throwing that out there, all right? Um, so here's a roadmap of kind of where we're going. Uh, thank you for the water. That's excellent. Um, we're going to talk kind of a couple of different sections we're actually going to start with talking about marriage. I wasn't quite sure why I felt so strongly, even until this morning, that I should be talking about marriage when I'm really talking about divorce. Um, and I realized that, I, but I really felt strongly about it. So we're going to start talking about marriage a little bit. Um, and I think the reason is that, theologically speaking, it's really important that we understand the theological importance of the concept of marriage. Um, Partly because then we can understand the importance of divorce and why we talk about divorce and why there are some of the misconceptions that there are surrounding divorce, um, but also partly because if we don't have that concept, we lose sight of a lot of theology in the Bible that is built around the, con the concept of marriage. Um, and you'll see throughout scripture that there's metaphor and there's allegory written around this idealized relationship that God has that works on, works on several different levels, and we'll talk about that. Um, 
so that's kind of where we're going, and then I'll, I'll give some personal thoughts. Um, I am planning on having a kind of a Q&A at the end if you want. So seriously, if you have any questions, jot them down, and be happy to answer those to the best of my ability. Uh, I do have a couple of disclaimers before we get into anything. The first disclaimer is that I'm not at all talking about the legal concept of either marriage or divorce. So there's kind of two things. In our culture, uh, partly because we come from a very uh, religious background as a nation, um, and certain, certainly certain aspects of religious belief are in sort of embedded in the, in the foundation of our culture, and we, we see that filter down even in ways that we don't necessarily realize. Um, we have this kind of mixed conception of uh, spiritual marriage and legal marriage. And within the Christian church, within the, the Christian community, that actually works pretty well. Um, but for the purposes of today's conversation, I want to separate out the definition of marriage that, you know, like the state has uh, versus the concept of marriage that God has. So there's, we're, we're looking at theological foundation, theological principles, and not necessarily legal ones, and they don't necessarily match up. So I don't, and, and the reason, one of the reasons I say that is because I want to make sure that there's this, that we're not misapplying theological concepts to legal concepts, all right? Um, the other thing that I want to, the other disclaimer that I, that I have is that uh, I am not addressing, and I'm very purposely not addressing in any, uh, in anything that I'm saying today, uh, gay marriage and homosexual relationships. Um, the reason that I say that up front is because some of the scriptures that we're looking at would overlap with that conversation. And so I know that there are going to be people who are like, oh, well, where does this leave us on, you know, where does this leave us as a church on teachings of marriage vis-a-vis um, -vis homosexual relationships or legalized gay marriage or any of that. And I'm purposely circumventing that conversation because there are lots of other elements to that conversation that we're not looking at because we're talking about divorce, right? Um, Chris, do you have, are you comfortable with that statement? Yes, okay. I'm going to take that as a yes. I think that's a very good way to phrase that. Okay, all right. Um, just because that's not something I want to state church policy on, you know? So. All right, into marriage, the importance of marriage. So biblical theology is basically what we're, what we're looking at right now. Um, and as I am wont to do, I'm going to start in Genesis. Why Genesis, you say? I don't know. I just like Genesis. That's why. Uh, sort of my default position. Um, there's an element of marriage that is embedded in creationary intent, right? So God is an artist, and uh, like all artists, his, his art, uh, he expresses himself out of his self, and, and his creation uh, mirrors who he is. If you want to understand the artist, you look at the art. If you want to understand the, uh, the Chinese calligraphy, because I took a Chinese calligraphy class in college, you look at the, right? Huh? I had an extra credit hour. Thank you very much. Uh, no, seriously, I took a bunch of weird classes my senior year because I was completely done and I was just filling credit hours. Uh, so I took a Chinese calligraphy course. And, you know, in the movies where they're like, you, you see this really stylized rendition of the apprentice calligrapher, and he's got his brush, and he's studying the master's work, and they're just kind of staring at it, studying the master's work. That really is what happens. Uh, if you want to understand what the master did, you have to look at his work. And you can tell if you know what you're looking for 
you know, how much ink he had on his brush, what the consistency of the ink was, where he put down his brush, where he lifted it, how much pressure he put on, did he twist it, um, how many strokes, brush strokes, did he use to write this character, et cetera, and so forth. And you can figure that out. But you have to spend a lot of time. And so uh, that's kind of a rabbit trail, but it is a fun one. Uh, right? Yeah? All right, all right. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate that. Um, so we look at the created to understand the creator. And one of the things that we see uh, in the creation epic is a story of God expressing himself, among other things, um, out of his relationship with himself. Remember, God, uh, the, uh, the author of Genesis, several times, kind of goes out of his way to use plurals, right? We created man in our image because it is the Godhead that's operating, not a single part of the Godhead. Um, so we created man, mankind. We created all things in our, plural, image. Why is this important? It's important because God looks at creation, right? And in Genesis 1, God looks at creation. You have the, you have the seven days, right? And at the end of the first five days, God says it's good. At the end of the sixth day, God says it's very good. And the seventh day, he rests. Then in Genesis 2, we focus in specifically on the creation of mankind. And God creates Adam and then says, well, it's not good that Adam is alone. Now, this is review for, for those of you who were with, with me when we talked about the Trinity. But, um, so the word for good there is not, this is not a qualitative, this is not good versus evil, it's good versus bad. The question that God is asking is, does this uh, conform to my creationary intent? Is this doing what I'm trying to do? And the answer in Adam's case during this brief period of time where it's just, just Adam but Eve hasn't been created yet, the answer is no. The reason the answer is no is because Adam is created in God's image, and God is not alone. So it's not good, it doesn't conform with the nature and character of God, for Adam to be alone. Now, this is not a statement of singleness, as some in the church have taken it to mean. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Yep, Malone Row there. You, you know about that, yeah, because you're, right, you're that age, you know. It's not good for you to be single. No. I, I know, I, I know, our, our, our conception. I mean, very well-meaning people, right, will tell you when you're single. All kinds of really bad theological statements. You just got to shrug and walk, walk away. I just, listen, you got to figure out where you're supposed to be, you know, between you and God, and just, just let the theology work itself out, all right? Um, so this is not a reference to singleness, but this is, this is a reference to the intimacy that God intends for mankind, all right? And that intimacy that God intends for mankind is meant to reflect the intimacy that God has in himself. He's got so much joy in this relationship that he has, right? The Godhead, we have this conception that God is super serious. God is not super serious, right? We get that. I don't know. I don't entirely know why we get that. Creed understands that God is not super serious. This is one of the reasons why Creed approaches preaching the way that he approaches preaching. <laughs> He works for NASA, did you know? You may have heard of them. They send people to Mars. <laughs> uh, or robots, which is, you know, same, same difference. They're taking over the world anyway, right? 
Um, so we have this concept that God is, God is super serious, but God, in fact, has great joy, right? God is all joy. God is all love. And that's what's being reflected within, within the, you know, the inner circle, within the Trinity, okay? That's what's being reflected. That's what's actually happening, and God is so joyful, right? And he's an artist, and he wants to express himself, so he expresses himself, and bleh, we have creation, just like that. Totally, totally just how it happens, right? Um, and part of creation is that God wants us to experience the same intimacy and the same joy, right? So, in chapter 2 of Genesis, God takes Adam, and he shows all of creation to Adam, and Adam names creation. This works on a couple of different levels. Um, for those of you who have heard some, some teaching or some mis- misteaching, as, as is sometimes the case about authority in marriage, headship in marriage, uh, not actually going to go into that per se, but this is one of, the, one of the passages where this comes from because in the Hebrew conception, when you name something or even when you know someone's name, you have a certain amount of authority over them. This is why you have this, this is why it's a big deal when Moses asked God at the burning bush, who are you that you send me? Hey, what's your name? Why doesn't God, God doesn't say I'm called Jehovah. We get to that, but he doesn't say that because he's establishing the relationship with Moses. His response is basically, yeah, that's not how this relationship works. I am who I am. You speak in my name, but you will not take my authority. That's what he's saying. He's putting Moses in his place, right? Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of where this comes from, right? So Adam, Adam is naming creation, okay, uh, among other things that he's doing. And no suitable helper for Adam is found, which is not good, right? Now, the author of Genesis goes out of his way to, to mention this. Why? Because he's pointing us back to the creationary intent that there is supposed to be intimacy, and Adam is missing it. It's not that Adam, it's not that there's anything wrong with Adam, okay? Uh, which is often t- taught, you know, like Adam wasn't somehow complete until Eve showed up. And that's not really true, I don't think. Uh, Adam's complete in, in, in himself as a created being, but he's missing an aspect of what God intended, and that is intimacy. Now, it's interesting because Adam at this point has intimacy with God, but the image of God is still not complete because Eve hasn't been created. So God reaches into Adam, and that's very important. The author is telling us that, that God takes Adam, puts him to sleep, reaches in, takes out a rib— Right? of all things. And that's representative of, of the inner nature, the inner, the inner being of Adam. And out of this created being, he creates Eve. Now, obviously, God could have just done the same thing that he did with Eve, right? Or with Adam, right? Take some dirt, right? Create Eve. He doesn't do that. Why? Why does the author use this imagery? Because the author wants us to understand that Eve is made out of the same essence, the same stuff as Adam, that's super, super important um, to the author, right? And Adam himself then recognizes when God brings Eve to him, he says, flesh of my flesh. Now, remember, he's seen all of the rest of creation. So, again, this is the author trying to get us to understand the importance of this relationship. He's seen all the rest of creation, and this is the only time that Adam says, wow, this, this part of creation is made from the same stuff as me, Right? And God says to them, 
it's good, go forth and multiply, okay? Um, there's an element of the symbolism that God, God's relationship with himself and God's intimacy with himself creates, it's creationary, right? Uh, Adam's relationship with Eve, Adam's intimacy with Eve is also creationary. Now, you can take that symbolism a little too far, just saying, <laughs> and I've heard it taken a little too far, um, but I'm just putting that out there, all right? Uh, okay, we're going to skip that. Uh, so this is, this is the verse involved. Um, so the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, referencing Adam. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds. So we, God created a lot of stuff. Uh, he brings them to the man, whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name, so the man gave names, yada yada, but for, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Um, so Adam creates Eve, uh, and, then, and then this statement, verse 24, uh, right here, is actually really important because Jesus quotes it later, so I'm pointing it out. Um, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There's the intimate, the, the relationship. It's really interesting. Again, this is not a reference to, to singleness, per se, or being alone, but of, of having a place to belong. It's really interesting here in the, the, that the conception is that the man belongs with his family, his father and mother, and then he immediately belongs to another family. And so there's never, there's never a place where he doesn't, he doesn't have a, a, a sense of that intimate bond, okay? Now, if you're a little like me, you have a bit of an introvert streak, I kind of go, oh, I don't really want to be around everybody all the time. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay. All right. Uh, another aspect of me. Any questions so far? I know that's, that's a lot. Things will start moving a little faster. Okay. Um, from a theological perspective, marriage is important because it re represents God's relationship with his people, i.e. those who are called by his name. We see this throughout the Bible. The Apostle Paul spends a significant amount of time talking about the relationship um, in, I think, I think, I want to say it's, it's Corinthians, but he talks about the relationship between um, husband and wife, and then sort of he spends a page and a half on this, and then sort of on the back end says, oh, by the way, I was really talking about the mystery between Christ and the church this whole time. Like he was running out of parchment and like, oh, wait, 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 I sort of lost track of what I was doing, and here I am, I'm, I'm coming back, all right? Um, and you see this in other places in Scripture as well. Um, the bride of Christ, that, that sort of language. Um, and this is actually from the Old Testament. This is from Micah. Uh, Judah has broken faith, and abom abomination has been committed in Israel and uh, Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. So the violation here is spiritual, but the imagery being used is marriage. Uh, as, uh, doo -doo -doo. as for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off, cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who is awake and aware, even if he brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Which is, this is pretty harsh stuff, right? And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offerings or receives them gladly with your hands. This is actually a really, really dangerous spiritual position to be in, obviously, where God has said, I don't even recognize your offering anymore. He says the same thing in Amos. Um, Yet you ask why? 
Mike is just going on a, on a rail at this point. Read chapter two sometime. It's kind of fun. Um, yet you ask why. It is because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have broken faith, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Again, this is spiritual. This is, this is specifically referencing the priests. It's who he's talking to, the priests of Israel. Right? Uh, it's a spiritual thing, but it's being described in terms of marriage. Right? Uh, covenant. Another reason why marriage is important in biblical theology is the concept of covenant, which I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. Uh, imagine everyone's reasonably familiar covenant uh, is a legal contract. It's usually a binding legal contract where both sides have some sort of commitment, some, some kind of skin in the game. That's not biblically always the case, but it usually is. Uh, some concepts of covenant. Uh, and there's, look, there's a lot of teaching around this, uh, and I'm definitely not going to go down, there, down this road, but if you have a slightly different understanding of covenant, that's fine. It's, it's not a big deal. Um, so just a list of various covenants, theologically speaking. Um, so like the, the, the Noahic Noah covenant, I don't know how you're supposed to say that. Um, the general covenant was made between God and Noah. So this is, uh, this is kind of an exception to the rule because there's nothing that Noah needs to do in this contract. This is literally God saying, I'm not going to destroy the, word, the, the, the earth in, in the way that I just did. Um, and there's nothing that Noah needs to do. Uh, but more common is like the Mosaic Covenant, uh, which is in Deuteronomy, where God, you know, God basically says, okay, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And here, here is what establishes these roles. So here, this is what I do. This is what you do. And this is what happens when those roles are broken, right? Uh, biblically speaking, covenant, uh, the marriage uh, relationship is a covenant, that there's a, there's a legally binding, spiritually legal, again, I'm not talking about the state, but spiritually legally binding commitment between two people, okay? Uh, now, with that kind of understanding in the background, uh, it becomes a little easier to understand why there's so much teaching around divorce in such a harsh way, which I'm definitely trying to avoid today. I'm trying to kind of break through some of that. Uh, how does God view divorce? This is from Malachi, and this one is, I mean, this is intentionally being a little harsh. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord. I think we read that. Uh, jumping down to 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, for he who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. Therefore, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Why does God hate divorce? Um, there's some obvious stuff, right? Basically, Divorce breaks all of the stuff that we just talked about. So the concept of creationary intent breaks intimacy. Um, obviously intimacy with another person, but it also often breaks intimacy with God. Um, partly just because of the trials and tribulations that come with a marriage that's falling apart. Um, it's a normal thing. Uh, breaks the, uh, obviously it breaks the covenant between two people, and perhaps most importantly, it causes a lot of, a lot of pain. God doesn't like pain. All right? Um, so that kind of leaves us in, aren't you, aren't you glad you came to church today? So sober, you know? Such fun we're having here. Um, so, do, 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 do. theological misconceptions of divorce. This first one doesn't come, I think, 
think. It doesn't come from any specific passage. But we have it somehow in our heads that divorce is some sort of unforgivable sin. That once you've been divorced, the doors are closed and you are forever battered and bruised in your damaged goods. And all of that is, is completely a lie. Now, Chris last week talked about the unforgivable sin out of Hebrews, which is where that comes from. Um, I'm actually just sort of usurping that phrase because that is how aspects of the modern American church seem to view divorce. And that's simply not, not, uh, not accurate. So I found this online and I included it just because I thought it was really funny. <laughs> um, if, you do it, if you do a Google image search for unforgivable sin, this is the kind of stuff you get. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's really like, you know, this is, this is incredible. But this is kind of how aspects of the church view divorce. You know, like you're radioactive, you know, like, oh my gosh, you've done something really incredibly like, oh, you can't recover from that. Simply not the case, all right? Another misconception we have about divorce is that divorce is somehow spiritually impossible. Um, that spiritual marriage is, a, is so complete a state that there can be no breaking it. Uh, that comes from this right here. Now, I've purposely grayed out most of this passage because we're actually going to put this back in context a little bit later. Um, but this is sort of a classic example of what happens when we, when we pick and choose verses and we don't, we don't study out their original context. Uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother to be united with his wife, quoting back to Genesis, uh, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So this is Christ speaking. So now we, we know that verse, the back end of verse 6, right? We know that. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate, because we hear that at sort of every, you know, 80% of weddings that we're at, right? Preacher comes up and at the end, you know, I, I present to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Um, so I think there's actually, so from my experience, I would say there's actually some truth to this in that there is a spiritual element of marriage that man cannot separate simply because man doesn't have the power. That God does something spiritually um, and I would not have said this necessarily, except that I've been there. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think that, I think I'm definitely within biblical, uh, biblical teaching to say that God really does, there seems to be something spiritual that happens, um, when you marry someone. And that that certain spiritual thing that happens can't be broken by man. God can break it. I also think that, that's, that spiritual thing that happens um, can be kind of hijacked by demonic influences as well. Um, and I think that one of the reasons we have to be very careful to guard our marriage is spiritually to guard whatever God is doing, right? Because I think in God's eyes, he's, he's, he's more literal than we often take him when he says, the two have become one. Um, so let me tell you a story about my own experience with this. Uh, so my wife and I had gotten married. Again, this is not Becca. Right? My wife and I had gotten married, and we're, I don't know, we're maybe six months in, something like that. Uh, and we're at, of all places, jeez, <laughs> I think it was a blockbuster, of all places. So, sorry. I, there's, there's, there's exactly one blockbuster left on the planet, I think. And it's got a Twitter feed that is sometime raunchy, sometimes raunchy and sometimes absolutely hilarious. Um, 
so we're in a blockbuster of all things. And, and, and up until that point, I guess, I guess in, in terms of background, up until that point, uh, even though it was clear that my, my, my wife was purposely torpedoing the marriage, I felt responsible spiritually to do everything in my power um, to make this thing work. I mean, I was incredibly unhappy. Well, I did. Um, but I felt obligated. And understand if you ever find yourself in this situation that you need to surround yourself, obviously, with, with godly counsel and also be prayerfully considerate of, okay, how do I respond to this situation? Um, and try to be as honest as possible. Like, okay, what have I done? <laughs> you know, like, what is my responsibility here going forward? Um, and I felt up into this, this sort of very precise moment uh, that I had a responsibility to do everything that I could, that I was not free spiritually to walk away. Now understand that that might look very different in every circumstance. This is not a formulaic thing. I want to be very careful about that. Um, but that's what I felt. That's where I was. Until... Uh, and I won't go into too many details, but she said something that my spirit sort of jumped on, and it became immediately clear to me that she had crossed the line from kind of working against our marriage to working against what God was trying to do in my life. Um, now, I was fortunate in the regard that I had been in that kind of circumstance before, and I recognized what was going on, so I knew what to do. Uh, and I immediately disengaged. I went and found, in the middle of the store, I went and found a um, sort of a quiet place, and I said, God, I'm going to need you to do something here because I am now spiritually tied to someone who is working against what you are trying to do. And the only things that I can think of is that you either need to move her or move the relationship. And I, I, like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're praying and it feels like the spirit is just like sort of just waiting for you to say something. And as soon as the words are out of your mouth, like, whoop. yeah, totally been there. This was one of those moments. Like, I, I swear to you, the breath was still leaving my mouth when I felt the Holy Spirit go, got it, totally on it. Uh, and I felt in my spirit, this is going to sound strange. It's really seriously, this is going to sound really bizarre. Um, but I felt in my spirit, you know, like when you have a, a, like a ginger snap and you break it? Like you snap it? There's this moment of, of you feel in your fingers, you know, you feel the tension and then you feel the snap and you feel the release, right? And, you know, and you can tell even without looking like, okay, that's broken. Like you can tell exactly when it breaks, right? That's what I felt in my spirit. And I was like... Well, that's weird. Never had that experience before. Like, like no, like no, no Holy Spirit saying, "Hey, God, this is what I'm doing." I'm gonna, you know, like, "Hey, Ken, this is what I'm doing. I'm giving you a heads up so you know what's going on, so you're not totally weirded out by this." No, 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 no nothing like that. Just, boop. and I said, "Well, that's weird. I don't know what to do with this, but okay, all right, God did something. All right, woo, okay." Uh, so my wife left that night. Um, she was planning on coming back, but she, she, she left that night for a visit with family. She was supposed to be back in the morning. She never came back. Um, two days later, three days, something like that, 
Um, she said, that's it, I'm out. And that actually turns out to be really important. I didn't realize this until retrospect. Um, I didn't realize this until well after the fact, but at that moment, I believed that God had broken the marriage. And it's really significant that he arranged, and this is really important, because when God does something, he will take responsibility for the consequences thereof. Because he, he did it. He's fair. He did it. Um, through no plans of our own, my wife and I were never in the same bed. And that's really important because, in retrospect, that would have been sin. Because God had broken the marriage. Legally, we were still married. Okay. Uh, now, take this all with a grain of salt because this is my experience. I'm not, I am absolutely not saying this is, you know, this is what the Lord says unto you. I'm simply sharing my personal, my personal experience. Okay. Um, so I do think there is a, a, a spiritual aspect that what God has joined together, no one, no person, no human can separate. Right? Um, that is not normally how this is taken. Often this is taken as, well, I mean, you got married, so under no, no circumstances should you ever possibly, you know. Right? Um, and this is kind of thrown at, at people who are in abusive relationships and things like that. Um, which obviously is not good. So, um, maybe another disclaimer there. So, yeah, right? Like, if you're in an abusive relationship, get out. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, we, it feels silly to say that, but the reality, I mean, people really do ca- get caught up in this. And it's partly because of the teachings of the church that, you know, there's this really bad, really unhealthy relationship, and we feel obligated to stay exactly where we are and just take it. And that's not true. Uh, like I said, prayerful consideration and godly counsel. If you're in a bad situation, prayerful consideration and godly counsel. Get yourself surrounded with people. And if you have to get out, you have to get out. Right? Now, I'm not saying rush off and go get a divorce. Okay. You know. But, you know, look, if this is, if things really are that bad, you, you, you know, you've got to have a plan. Right? Uh, and you can't just, you can't just take it on the chin forever. Um, it's really sad that people throw Bible verses at that. Uh, all right. And the next, uh, the next sort of misconception of divorce, and this actually comes out of that same passage, is that sort of under no, no circumstances can you have remarriage. Um, this is right out of that same passage. Moses permitted you <laughs> uh, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. That hurts. That's just, man, that hurts. Uh, and this is Christ again. I tell you that anyone who divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. A couple of things. First of all, this is kind of a side note. The term, uh, since I was reading up on it, on it this week, the term sexual immorality there, that's actually probably a better, uh, a better translation than some, which would actually substitute adultery for sexual immorality. Uh, the term appears to be a little broader than we normally sort of normally think in terms of adultery. So sexual immorality in general, it's not necessarily a specific term, um, which puts a, you know, puts a different light on pornography. Just throwing that out there. Okay. Uh, but in context, so this is a classic example of, all right, we've taken exactly uh, one and a half verses 
out of this larger passage, and we've applied it from there. All right, so this is, what's, this is the whole passage. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went to a region of Judea, uh, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him and, and to test him. That's always a hallmark of a good time when you're reading the, reading the gospel and you say, ah, the Pharisees are here to test Jesus. Love it. I am a Pharisee in recovery, so I often, I, I kid you not, this is, this is seriously what happens when I read these passages. I, I read what the Pharisees say and say, yeah, what about it, Jesus? They've got a point. How are you going to wiggle out of this one? It's totally me. I would have made a great Pharisee. I have also met people who would not make great Pharisees, and they look at me like I'm stark raving mad when I'm like, well, I think the Pharisees have a point. They're like, what? Are you crazy? Heathen! Um, no, actually, mostly at that point, they just sort of turn around and sort of back away slowly, you know, like, oh, it's kind of weird, which is true. Um, so the Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That turns out to be kind of critical to this passage. Uh, okay, so a little background before we continue. Uh, there's a couple of things that are probably going on here. One of which um, is that there was a legal debate among Jewish scholars at the time uh, about, so what does it mean when Moses says you can have a divorce? And the Pharisees seem to have fallen on the side of, well, you can... You, if you find any fault at all with this person that you've married, you can write a certificate of divorce, whatever that means, and you can send her away. And of course, what this means in, in, in reality, right, is I'm trading in for a younger model, is what this, right? I'm, or, you know, a, a better model, right? Hey, this one's got air conditioning. You know? Like, like that's what's going on. <laughs> okay? I mean, seriously, this is, this is what's happening, right? Um, and that's why they ask, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, another thing that's going on is that at the time, uh, good old Herod, uh, who's always, he's always stirring up the pot, Herod, uh, had done something, I forget exactly what the details were, but he killed his wife and he married his wife's niece or some, some such, uh, something of this nature. Um, and so part of the trap is, well, if we can get Jesus to say something that gets him in trouble with Herod, then maybe we can get rid of this guy, you know? So as most Pharisaic traps, it's, it's operating on multiple levels, and, and as most of Jesus' answers when he is presented with a test, this answer works on multiple levels. And he starts with a question because he's Jewish, and that's what you do. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. He's quoting Genesis again. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. So why are you interested in tearing them apart all the time? That's what he's saying. Uh, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then? So now they start getting in the meat. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? What they're saying is, ah, but Moses says. And the Pharisees are really good at this, right? They're They're always appealing to either Abraham or Moses. Well, our father Abraham. How did I not see that coming? 
I even went to Baptist Sunday school. I totally should have saw that coming. Uh, or they're appealing to Moses, right? Well, Moses, the lawgiver, you know, and the Pharisees obviously were big on the law, right? So why then did Moses command uh, that a man give his, his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And this, this is, so this is part of the trap, right? So if Jesus doesn't respond in an appropriate fashion, the Pharisees are going to come back and say, yeah, this guy is teaching, this guy's teaching is contrary to the teachings of Moses. So now we have an excuse to get rid of him. Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Ouch. You whitewashed tombs. I remember this, this is the same group of people that he called whitewashed tombs. Okay. Uh, no wonder they don't like him very much, you know. He's really upset in the apple cart here. Uh, but it was not this way from the beginning. So he's referencing back to creationary intent. Look, this wasn't the point, guys. You have completely missed God's intent. I tell you that anyone who divorces a wife except for sexual immorality, so he's drawing a line. He's saying that, that there is something here. You have a point. I'll give you this. But I tell you that anyone who, who divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And what was happening in many cases is they were divorcing their wife to marry another woman. And this is what he's talking about. Like, listen, guys, this is adultery, because what you're doing is you're saying, you go away, you come in, and you think it's okay because you followed the law and given her a certificate of divorce. So you went to the courthouse, well, in this case, the temple, right? You went to the priest, you got your certificate, it's all good, it's fine. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not all good, it's not fine, it's actually adultery. This is the same guy who says, you know, hey, by the way, if you look at a woman with intent to lust, you're committing adultery. Right. The disciples, I know, I, I know, I'm laughing for the same reason. I love the disciples' response. I, I, I didn't really need to leave this in, but I just love it so much. Uh, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples, not the right, right. The disciples. Like, oh, you know, you could just see them looking at each other like, oh, we didn't sign up for this. Wait till you guys find out what, what's going to happen later. This is nothing. <laughs> um, I think this is probably a sentiment that the Apostle Paul would have some sympathy for. I think this is what he said. Uh, Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word. He's using some British understatement there, apparently. Getting in touch with this British self. Uh, not everyone can accept this were true, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made that way by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs, eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. This is part of a larger conversation that we have uh, throughout the New Testament of like, okay, so... So if you're married, are you interested in the interests of your wife or the interests of your God? Which is the rock and the hard place that I was put in, right? Um, when my wife was working against the interests of God in my relationship, right? Um, so those are things that you need to think about. And Jesus, always the pragmatist. Jesus is far more practical than we, than we think he is. We, we think he's living in some cloud, in a, in a cloud of mist, 
Um, and, and, you know, no offense to Jake's mysticism over there. I love you, man. I'm a mystic, too, in a lot of ways. But Jesus is actually shockingly pragmatic. The one who can accept this should accept it. Right. And if you can't accept it, probably better not to get married. Okay. Good enough. I think that's, oh, yeah. I think that's the last of the slides. Uh, all right, so first of all, questions so far? No, no, I was, I was honestly expecting somebody. Is there any place in the Bible that says that John really wanted to leave you as a wife? Uh, I don't think so. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> I did not go into those passages. Sorry, I did not go into those passages. Yes, right. Which was functionally the situation that I was in. Yeah. Because my wife had also walked away from God at that point. Um, I do have some, some thoughts. Uh... So advice to those who have been divorced, or advice to give, maybe, carefully, to those who have been divorced. Um, always, 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 prayerful consideration and godly counsel. This is also, it, and, uh, you know, Zach, you and I were talking about this a while ago, but uh, I, I tend to be a little hesitant to, you know, to, to give specific advice, but even if you're looking at getting married, prayerful, prayerful consideration and godly counsel. Prayerful consideration and godly counsel. Malone Rowe, prayerful consideration and godly counsel. Also, throw him back. He's not good enough. You will find, you know, likely someone who you shouldn't throw back. Okay. But it's, you know, it's rare. I'm just saying. Okay. I'm just saying. Red flags, yellow flags, prayerful consideration, and godly counsel, right? So when I was dating, um, not Christy, when I was dating Becca, uh, having learned from my mistakes, huh? Huh? Uh, I, had, um, I had a couple people in my life that actually had veto power. One of them knew that they had veto power, and one of them did not, right? Uh, but I had a couple of people who I knew had my number, um, and I brought Becca to them, and they asked some questions, and they sort of studied the relationship a little bit, and uh, a woman named Brenda in particular, had Brenda said, hey, Ken, and she would have. See, one, one of the things that I learned is that, you know, the first time around, I, I mean, I had godly counsel, but my godly counsel wasn't... Uh, in some ways, kind of wasn't up to the task. I hate to say that, but they, they saw the red flags but weren't willing to say something, including the pastor involved in, in marrying us. And he said, you know, later he was kind of, uh, <laughs> I blew it, <laughs> you know. Uh, and one of my really good friends, who was also a groomsman, is like, oh, I blew this. I'm so sorry. I saw this coming and I didn't die. I'm sorry. I should have let you do this. Um, so I knew that she would say something, and I said, all right, Brenda. She's the one who knew. I said, Brenda, you take a good hard look at this girl, 
And she's like, oh, yeah, I will. She was going to anyway. I already knew that. And had she said, Ken, there's something going on here, that would have been it. I'm, I'm dead serious. That would have been it. I would have been like, all right, we're done. Um, that's totally a tangent, but Malone Rowe, since you're here, okay. Prayerful consideration in Catholic counsel. Uh, don't fear remarriage. Having been through that, too, I'd say don't fear remarriage. Uh, and don't think you're damaged goods, because you're not. But do get healed. Um, and healing will be necessary, because you can't go through a failed marriage. You can't go through a divorce without some pain, right? Um, some of that is going to be pain that you've caused, too, which we... Internally, like, we have a really hard time with that. Like, we have a really hard time, like, forgiving ourselves if we have caused, so if we're responsible. And, you know, we know people who are in that circumstance, right? Like, I am responsible for torpedoing this thing. I mean, learn from that. Get healed, you know? But don't think that somehow God's like, ha! No joy for you! Because that's not how God works, right? The whole point of the thing was all that's taken away on the cross. Um, also, uh, for, for those who may find yourself in a bad marriage, and Malone Rowe, I hope you don't. But if you do, <laughs> prayerful consideration in Godly counsel. <laughs> Just, it's a mantra. Get, get the t-shirt. Um, it's really, really important to define, this is probably good advice for all occasions, actually. It's really important to define where my responsibilities end and God's begin. And cling to my responsibility. Um, and I can tell you one reason I came through a very bad marriage and a divorce relatively unscathed um, was because I absolutely clung to my responsibilities. Um, I knew where I was supposed to be in terms of this is what I need to do. I wasn't happy about it, but this is what I need to do. Um, and God honors that. Right? Um, so cling to that. And then, you know, sometimes we just got to trust that God is good when we can't see it. You know, there's that, what is it, the Casting Crows song? It sounds, you know, I thought by now you would have reached out Wiped our pain away, stepped in, saved the day, right? Casting crowns, yeah, I am too. I'm the same. That's why. That's how I got there. That's not right. Um, and and you know and like, we put ourselves in that situation a lot, right? Like, uh, God, I really thought by now you'd have done something, you know? Like, I really thought, God, that if I were about to walk into this really bad marriage, like you would have done something. And then we blame God, you know? Um, God is good. God really is good. We don't always see it. Uh, so sometimes we kind of have to take that on faith. But again, if you're in that circumstance, find somebody who's in touch with the goodness of God to remind you, because we need that. You know, tragedy happens in life. Tragedy's going to happen in all of our lives. Um, so we need that reminder that, okay, yes, even in this, even though I feel like, God, you really should have ended this by now, God is still good. Right. Um, I think that is it for me, unless there are any 
hot burning questions that are not theological traps, Chris. Pharisee! Well, well, well. Look at who we, we have a question in the peanut gallery. Now, this is important, guys. This is my brother, Mike, sauntering in as usual right on time. That's a good question. Um, so a couple of things. Um, there, there was a period of mourning and then kind of a reset. Um, I don't know that I can necessarily say it much better than that, but there, there, there was. There was a period of mourning because you have, you know, so you do have these, these hopes and these expectations based on a number of things, right? And so for me, obviously, that was, you know, to some degree, the classic expectations of marriage that we have when we enter into a marriage, um, some of which are, you know, probably not really based in reality anyway, as we all find out <laughs> after we've been married, um, and, and some of which was spiritual, and some of which, honestly, was, was based on what she was telling me going into the marriage. Um... So, you know, there was definitely when, you know, when I realized really pretty quickly that, hey, this was not going to be what I was hoping, and this was going to be much worse than I ever imagined it could go, there's obviously a period of mourning in that. Um, but when I came out the other side of that and sort of the dust had settled, um, I guess I kind of emotionally sort of reverted back to where I was before I, you know, before we'd met, you know, that when you're single, you have these expectations of, you know, meeting someone and, and the expectations of maybe what that marriage would look like. That was a lot smarter the second time around. <laughs> As you know, Mike was there. but not receiving? I don't think any more so than any anything else we ache for and aren't getting. Okay. You know? Um, 
Yeah, I don't. I, um, it was it was interesting. I think some of it for me that marriage was short lived. I mean, we're talking a period of you know half a year, so a really bad half year. You know, worst roommate I ever had. Um, <laughs> we can edit that, right? Uh, but you know, fortunately, it was short lived enough that that it was much, much easier to sort of emotionally like, we, you know, we cut the cord and God can do what he's going to do. And the timing of everything, and this is just, this just speaks to, you know, God's magnificent goodness. Uh, the timing of everything was such that, so, you know, I told you that, so I, I prayed whatever on, on Thursday, and then it was actually on Sunday that she said, hey, I'm, I'm leaving. I had that following week off because I was starting a new job the following Monday. Um... So I had lots of other things that were sort of like every, everything that was new in my life sort of all lined up at once, you know. So I, I had the advantage of having a week, like, well, okay, I can deal with, I can deal with this stuff. I can deal with the logistics and, uh, you know, all this stuff that needs to be dealt with. Um, and then I'm starting this new job, and obviously that helps take your mind off things, you know, right? Um, and I had kept the apartment, so... You know, it was, I mean, it, it was kind of a clean break, and that helped emotionally, too. Um, and mom actually pointed this out, but, because uh, I called her sometime during that week, and I'm like, it, it, so I'm like, I, I feel bad that maybe I don't feel worse about the fact that this thing is actually over, because I was frankly relieved at that point. And she said, Ken, you mourned the loss of this marriage while you two were together. You don't need to mourn it anymore. Um, and that was really impactful for me. Somebody given, and sometimes it's what we need, right? God, godly advice and <laughs> right? godly counsel. Um, you know, sometimes we need permission to move on, you know? And so that, I mean, that's what did it for me. And so that, it was, it was kind of a total reset in that, in that regard. You know, like, okay, we'll go back to, you know, sort of the, ex the same expectations and hopes that I had of marriage. I don't know, 10 months previously, <laughs> you know? Just, obviously, it's not going to be her, right? Does that help? Does that kind of answer that? We can talk about it later. Okay. Anything else? Good, good, good? Rock on. All right. I'm out. Peace out. Not going to do that. Don't take my Bible, Ken. I will not take your Bible, sir. Whatever. Even though you have the Mount of Spiritual straight in front of you. The, which one? In which way do you mean that? Because there's so many different ways. So many different ways I can be said. So, Ken, thank you so very much for sharing from your experience, especially in such a difficult topic to discuss in such an open format. We appreciate you being willing to do so. Ladies and gentlemen, this time we're going to be stepping into a time of communion. A couple of things real quick before we start. One is the recognition that, man, our culture puts a huge emphasis on marriage, right? Who here has seen that? Where it's like, if you're not married, there's something weird or wrong, right? It's basically the plot line of every romantic comedy ever. It's such a big part of our cultural zeitgeist, is the best word I have for it, that it seems awkward to not be actively pursuing marriage. But the fun thing is, Scripture is kind of the opposite of that. 
they talk very carefully about being careful whom you marry, being, and, and honestly, that marriage is hard work and difficult, and if possible, avoid it. Not even joking. Like, straight up, Paul, at the end of that 1 Corinthians 7 section says, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you may do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in life, and I want to spare you this. Straight up. Thus says the word of the Lord, right? Yeah. Now, it's worth noting. I would never, ever, ever give up the life I have with Christy. I absolutely love what Christ has done uh, in our lives through our knowledge of each other. But at the same point, I didn't get married until I was 28, right? 27. I know how old I am, right? I married later in life. Christy was 29 when we got married. 27. 27. I don't know how old I am. How old am I right now? No, 35. I'm 35, I believe. We'll do some subtraction later and we'll talk about this, right? All right. So I don't even know <laughs> what life would have been like if I had rushed into marriage whenever I was in college. I don't know what my life would look like. I know that God can use anything, but I'm very grateful now for the time whenever I was single, even though I wasn't very grateful for it then, <laughs> right? Don't rush into marriage and don't feel pressured to get married. Don't try and find someone just to get married. Be willing to wait and be patient. Be willing to spend your time focusing on Christ because it is one of the biggest blessings of singleness that you can possibly have. Your mind is not pulled in multiple directions. You can focus who you are on Jesus and what he's done in your life. So if I can give you this piece of push or advice, as you're going to school, as you're moving into adulthood, if you're not in adulthood yet, as you are stepping into beyond college times, if you're starting to feel like, oh, my time is passing away, no. Don't look for that. Enjoy the time you have with Christ now. Right? We know that the whole point of marriage and the whole point of everything in this world is to give honor and glory to God, to glorify Him. We know that He has made it possible for us to glorify Him through His death and His resurrection. He has made it possible for us to be in relationship with Him whenever we didn't have that possibility before. And we remember that possibility in communion whenever we partake of it together. Communion is a time whenever we remember what Christ has done for us by breaking his body and offering his blood on our behalf that we might have fellowship and relationship with him. At City Church, we offer what is called an open communion. This means any and all who are followers of Christ are welcome to partake with us regardless of creed or confession. You don't have to be a member of City Church to do it. You don't have to follow us in our Christian faith tradition. We just ask that you be a follower of Christ. So that means that whenever you're ready to do so, please feel free to take a moment, pray, discuss your life with your Lord, and then move forward and partake of communion.